0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit what is called the Negro Fort at Prospect
1: Bluff. Were they British? Were they Spanish? Were they American? They were people. They were people that were looking for a place to live in safety and in freedom, to have the destiny for their own future and to plant the seeds for their children to live in safety for their children and their children's children.
0: We'll discuss the classic 1947 book,
2: The Everglades, River of Grass, by Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. She tries to go as far back into the archeological record as it was known in 1947. Who were the first inhabitants who lived there? How did the actual Everglades form?
0: And we'll talk about the Dade Massacre of 1835. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. From the time that enslaved people were first brought to North America, Florida served as a sanctuary for people of African descent seeking freedom until the United States took control in 1821. Some of the people who escaped British slavery in the 1600s and 1700s joined Spanish society in Florida. Others chose to live in freedom among Native Americans, and some established free black settlements. After the American Revolution, the British supported the colonization efforts of free black people, even as Spain retained ownership of Florida. Public historian Anthony Dixon is archivist at Bethune-Cookman University. By the time we get to the 1800s, everyone needs to trade with the Caribbean because just about every European country is in the Caribbean now. And so Tampa, Panama City, uh, Pensacola, Mobile, Biloxi, and New Orleans. Those become the international ports. Those become the important ports. Those are the ports that you can actually get your more exotic wares from. And so um, the war, uh, the Patriots War within the War of 1812 was over those ports. In the early 1800s, Florida was still owned by Spain, but England built a fort at Prospect Bluff in the Florida Panhandle. Florida historian Dale Cox. The War of 1812 was underway and the British were interested in opening
3: a new campaign or a a new front in the war. And they saw Florida sort of as a way to get a foothold on the Gulf Coast to begin that process. And by establishing a foothold in Florida, they could arm the Muscogee Creek people and the Seminole people. Uh, They could bring them over to fight on the British side and begin to uh, create activity against the United States that would distract the United States, that would create conflict against the Southern States and open the door for either an attack against
0: Mobile or New Orleans. Rhonda Kimbrough is the Heritage Program Manager for the National Forests in Florida.
1: So this was towards the end of the War of 1812, and this was going to be the site of a three-pronged attack by the British government and to the Americans. Um, there was gonna be one here from the west in Mississippi and from Cumberland Islands, all coming into the middle of the southeast. So you can imagine the buildup of weaponry here. This was one of a three-pronged attack to take over the entire southeastern United States.
0: The British aspirations were thwarted, of course. In 1815, at the conclusion of the War of 1812, the British left their fort at Prospect Bluff. Dale Cox and Rhonda Kimbrough. The British left
3: the fort in the hands of uh, basically uh, a company strength uh, of their former colonial marines. The colonial marines were for the most part uh, maroons who were former slaves. Uh, They had been trained in, uh, in British Royal Marine tactics by the Royal Marines. They were discharged and given freedom papers by uh, Lieutenant Colonel Edward Nichols prior to his departure here. He had raised a battalion of these uh, colonial marines here. Two of the companies evacuated to Trinidad, but one of the companies opted to stay here at the fort. Uh, When the British evacuated, this company continued to function as a military company here. They continued to uh, hoist the colors every day. They performed military drills. They opened farms up and down the Apalachicola River, and they basically established a functioning colony here.
1: The leader at the time was Garcon. Uh, he was African American. He was formerly enslaved individual from Pensacola. Um, he was uh, very well skilled. He was a trained soldier. Um, and also, there were about 20 Choctaw who were here. Now, the Choctaw, Um, during the Creek Civil Wars were actually allied with American government. But this was a faction of Choctaw who chose not to align with Americans. And when um, the Creek Civil War ended and Red Stick Creek refugees flooded into this area seeking refuge, uh, they came with them. And so when uh, the British left, it was basically Garcon and um, a small contingent of British trained, formerly enslaved African individuals and there was a small contingent of Choctaw that were left with them. It was a very diverse community here, multilingual, people from every single ethnicity represented in the southeastern United States of the day.
0: Not much physical evidence of the Negro Fort at Prospect Bluff remains today, but Rhonda Kimbrough says that historical documents help to identify where archaeologists might find artifacts.
1: We have a a map that an individual named Pentado from Pensacola, who he came here to try to to beg the formerly enslaved people who were living here that had escaped from Pensacola with uh, Edward Nichols. He came here to ask them to come back to Pensacola. He he tried everything like, oh, this is insecure out here. Come back to safety. We'll treat you right, whatever. Didn't work. He went back empty handed. But he did make a map, which was uh, very fortunate for us because um, even though it's not the scale by modern-day mapping conveyances, it it is definitely, uh, it gives us information we wouldn't have otherwise. And so on that 1815 map, it shows the main citadel, which is right over here. It also shows the water battery that was on the Apalachicola River to our right. Um, And then there's these little square buildings around it. So, and and they're very um, symmetrical. So it tells you that it's either a military barracks or possibly uh, military barracks and you know, the maroon community individuals that were the families of the soldiers.
0: As Dale Cox explains, a single cannonball destroyed the fort at Prospect Bluff.
3: The attack actually took place in July of 1816. Uh, it, it, the siege lasted a week prior to the final day of the attack, when the destruction of the fort took place, the U.S. Navy became engaged on the final day of the attack, July 27th, 1816. Um, A nine pound cannonball was fired from a distance of almost two miles away, uh, really with little hope of doing any damage. According to an eyewitness who was in the fort at the time, the cannonball struck a pine tree and ricocheted down into an area at the center of the fort where a group of women and children were filling bags with powder to be used in the fort's cannon, igniting those bags, which communicated a fire through the open door of the powder magazine, setting off the magazine. The fort exploded. Most of the people inside the fort had concentrated into the central citadel, which was a strong point of the fort. Uh, when the magazine exploded, they, they were all in such a confined area that the, the loss of life was enormous.
0: Rhonda Kimbrough.
1: An individual named Mary Ashley, who I'm fascinated by her life story. She was actually um, blown up and buried virtually alive and during the explosion, managed to stay hidden under the rubble for a day or two um, by, you know, having a breathing hole. But um, they did find her and recapture her and she was returned to slavery. And it's part of the bigger story in that many, many years later, she presented herself at a British consulate uh, and told them that she had gained her freedom here as a British subject. And they wrote Edward Nichols in England for verification of that story. And he verified her story and she was returned to freedom as a British subject.
0: In 2018, Hurricane Michael devastated Prospect Bluff, downing hundreds of large trees. The damage did provide a unique opportunity for archaeological
4: excavation. Andrew Wise is with the Southeast Archaeology Center. I've laid out a representative sample of some of the artifacts that came out of the, um, the root balls of these trees that, fe- that fell at the site. Um, and they include uh, musket balls, British gun flints, and European ceramics as well as Native American ceramics. Some examples, this would be a British gunflint that was found at the site near the Negro Fort. And along with this flint, we also found a lead musket ball. At other parts of the site, we were finding um, amounts of uh, Native American pottery. This type of pottery is called Chattahoochee brushed, and it's from the historic era. We know creeks were producing this pottery, and this pottery tradition was brought into Florida by the creeks who later became the Seminoles. We also have annular ware pottery. This is uh, an English variety, also blue shellage pearl ware. Both of these varieties were very popular in America and in England. We know the fort was stocked by the British, so it's not unusual to find these British uh, types of pottery. It's exactly what we would expect. After the destruction
0: of the British fort at Prospect Bluff in 1816, future U.S. President Andrew Jackson took advantage of the strategic location. Dale Cox.
3: U.S. troops occasionally occupied the site off and on even prior to Jackson uh, arriving here in 1818 during the First Seminole War. Uh, When Jackson arrived in 1818, he was coming downriver trying to meet supply boats. Uh, The First Seminole War was underway, Uh, his army was starving, Uh, they were low on supplies, uh, but he knew that ships were coming from New Orleans with desperately needed provisions and so he came down trying to meet those vessels. He arrived here, he knew that deep water uh, ships could, arrive, could come up the Apalachicola to this point, point. and so he ordered the construction of a, of a fort here to serve as a supply depot. He named it after uh, his engineer, James Gadsden, and, and thus uh, Fort Gadsden uh,
0: came into being, which is the name that most people today know the fort by. We spoke with Anthony Dixon from Bethune-Cookman University, Rhonda Kimbrough with the National Forests in Florida, Andrew Wise with the Southeast Archaeology Center and historian Dale Cox about the Negro Fort at Prospect Bluff in the Florida Panhandle. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to watch our television series, Florida Frontiers. Find great books on Florida history and culture. Subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas was
2: a prominent environmentalist and author in Florida. Yeah, that's right, Ben. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas actually first visited Florida when she was only four years old in the 1890s, but she wasn't originally from the state. She was born in Minneapolis, lived there for the first few years of her life, but her parents actually split up when she was fairly young, so she moved to Massachusetts and really grew up in New England. She eventually went to college. She went to Wellesley College and studied literature and writing and didn't come back to Florida until after her marriage, actually, a very short-lived marriage, had failed. So she moved to Florida where her father was living, specifically to Miami, And at the time, he worked as the publisher of the Miami Herald. So she got her first real kind of professional writing gigs working for the editorial page for the Miami Herald. And she really built a career early on as a journalist, as a novelist, and as a writer. And a lot of her stories, a lot of her focus was on, naturally, on Florida, on Florida's history and South Florida life and the beginnings and early history of of Miami and Southeast Florida. But it wasn't until a few decades later that she really honed in her writing towards more ecological causes. But she was very heavily involved in in a lot of different efforts throughout her very long and and varied lifetime. In fact, her father had sent her in 1916 to do an interview of a young woman who was joining the U.S. Naval Reserves. Well, the woman didn't show up. So what did Marjorie Stoneman Douglas do? She joined the U.S. Naval Reserves, served briefly at a post there in South Florida. She left and actually joined the Red Cross and worked for the Red Cross over in France throughout the First World War. And she wrote a little bit About her experiences there, came back to Florida, and even in the 1920s began investigating and learning about this vast natural resource that we refer to as the Everglades.
0: Now, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, of course, is best known for her 1947 book, The Everglades River of Grass, and you have here from the Library of Florida History Archive a signed first edition copy.
2: Yeah, that's right. We're looking at a first edition, first printing of Everglades River of Grass. And and you're right, as you said, this is the book that Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is probably best known for. It was published and actually released in November of 1947, and it coincided with the establishment of the Everglades National Park, which occurred officially in December of that same year, 1947. But again, she had been writing about the Everglades since the 1920s, so a lot of her research went into this writing. And she was, remember, a journalist at heart, so when you read through this book, it reads less like an esoteric academic treatise on the Everglades, and it's really more about this journalistic kind of a popular read about the history of the Everglades, and that's really what it is. It's a natural history of the Everglades leading up to 1947. So she tries to go as far back into the archaeological record as it was known in 1947. Who were the first inhabitants who lived there? How did the actual Everglades form? And then in the latter part of the 19th century, how was it being affected by human development in South Florida? And then by 1947, she was trying to argue, well, we need to do something to try and save this wonderful and unique land. I'd like to just read, uh, opening up the first paragraph here, which she actually first mentions the Everglades as the river of grass. She kind of coined that term. She writes here, There are no other Everglades in the world. They are, they have always been, one of the unique regions of the earth, remote, never wholly known. Nothing anywhere else is like them. Their vast, glittering openness, wider than the enormous, visible round of the horizon, the racing free saltness and the sweetness of their massive winds under the dazzling blue heights of space. They are unique also in their simplicity, the diversity, the related harmony of the forms of life they enclose. The miracle of light pours over the green and brown expanse of sawgrass and of water, shining and slow-moving below, the grass and water that is the meaning and the central fact of the Everglades of Florida. It is a river of grass, unquote. So this is the first paragraph. And like I said, the, the entire volume really reads like that. It's an easy read. It's fascinating. It really draws the reader into the story and the evolution of this landscape.
0: And although this book is more than 70 years old now, its content is still relevant today, right?
2: Absolutely. And even after Douglas had published this volume, she was very active in preservation and then later restoration efforts. Uh, At one point, she even argued, there is no point in preserving the Everglades. It's all gone. We now need to restore the Everglades. And she worked towards enacting legislation and state and federal funding to help restore the natural flow of what she called the river of grass. Now, as I said, the book is really written for a popular audience. And there is some criticism by scientists and, and biologists and hydrologist because it, in many ways, kind of oversimplifies the true complexity of the region. But for 1947, this really was on the cutting edge of what we understood about our relationship with the natural world. So as you said, now after so many decades later, this is an absolute must read for anybody in public policy and really anybody living in the state of Florida. This is one of the, in the canon of Florida history, this is one of the top reads. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you.
0: Ben DiBiase is director of educational resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see this signed first edition copy of The Everglades River of Grass by Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. She has this look at the Dade Massacre of 1835.
5: In December 1835, eight officers and 100 men from the U.S. Army under the command of Brevet Major Francis Langhorne Dade marched from Fort Brook at Tampa Bay, Florida, to reinforce troops at Fort King in present-day Ocala. During that time in Florida history, the U.S. government was attempting to force the Seminoles to relocate to new lands west of the Mississippi River. Hundreds of Seminole chiefs and warriors were opposed to the move and fought back. Halfway to their destination, on December 28th, Dade and his soldiers were attacked by Seminoles led by Chief McEnope. The Seminoles and Dade's men exchanged gunfire for six hours. While the Seminoles lost three men out of nearly 200, only two U.S. soldiers out of 108 men survived what became known as the Dade Massacre. Dade's Battle, as it's also known, brought the United States into the Second Seminole War. The location of Dade's Battle is now part of Dade Battlefield Historic State Park in Sumter County. The story of Dade's Battle was largely unknown until 1962, when Frank Lamer stopped by the state park near his home for a picnic with his family.
6: I wandered through the park and went to the museum and asked if they had any books or anything about the battle. I'd like to learn something about it. I'd never heard of it. And they said, no, all they had was a two-page pamphlet. And I thought, well, that's, that's not very satisfying. I'll go make some phone calls and write some letters and try to find some information about this battle. Well, that was, let's see, 61 years ago.
5: Since that day, Frank Lommer has worked tirelessly to raise awareness about the battle and the men. Now nearly 90 years old, he's become the leading historian on Dade's battle and the Seminole Wars.
6: I kept on writing letters and making phone calls and traveling across the country, following up every clue that I could find about the men, about the weather, about the land, about the weapons. And the deeper I got into it, um, the deeper I wanted to get. I really want to know every single thing that can be known about those men in that battle. I don't know why, because I'm no scholar. I don't have a sterling academic record behind me, but I do have persistence. And I have found what I consider to be a pretty amazing amount of information. Everything that could bear on that battle.
5: During his research into Dade's battle, Frank Lommer was surprised to find that most people he asked had never heard of it.
6: It was a total mystery to most of the people I talked to. They'd say "Was it, there was a, a battle in Florida. Yeah, it was, took place 10 miles south of here. Well, I never heard of it. I said, well, it's a state park, and there was a battle there in 1835. Well, I'll be darned. And they lived that close to it and didn't even know the battlefield existed. It's kind of strange. But it's part of the general amnesia about the war.
5: Frank Lommer's research on Dade's battle led to his 1968 book called Massacre and a second book from 1995 called Dade's Last Command. For his work, Frank Lommer received the D.B. McKay Award from the Tampa Historical Society for Distinguished Service in the Cause of Florida History. For 60 years, Frank Lomar has been particularly interested in the life and death of one of the U.S. survivors from Dade's battle, Ransom Clark.
6: There were three soldiers who survived. One of them uh, lived on for five years, and he claimed to have had a great many wounds, a bullet through his shoulder, a bullet through his right shoulder blade, that he had had a smashed pelvis, and various other wounds. And the more I read about that and his claims to injuries, the more I wondered if it could possibly be true. How could he, in that condition, with all those bullet holes in him, come to in the middle of the night, and in three days had gotten 50 miles back to Fort Brook, crawling on his hands and knees part of the time. In
5: 1977, Frank Laumer personally exhumed and examined the bones of Ransom Clark, in order to confirm his tale of heroic courage.
6: I got permission from New York State to exhume the body, and I hired a pathologist to meet me at the grave. And my wife and my brother and I flew up in December, appropriately enough. We went by a hardware store and bought a shovel and a pick, and we went out to the grave, and we laid him out on the plywood sheet. I had told the pathologist nothing of what this man had claimed to have done. I just said, I want this remains examined and give me a report on it. So he did, and he kept telling me that he received severe trauma in the right shoulder and he had a smashed pelvic bone on his right leg. He found that the man had had every bullet wound that he claimed, and yet he crawled or walked, made his way 50 miles.
5: His story of persistence and perseverance resonated with Frank Lahmer.
6: He had no clothes on except his trousers. He had no boots, no shirt. And with these wounds, he made his way back crossing four rivers. And if somebody like that's not worth remembering, then nobody is.
5: Frank Lahmer's research about Private Ransom Clark became Nobody's Hero, a historical novel published in 2008.
6: He must have been quite a man and I've come to know him. I've held his skull in my hands and looked him in the eye socket and thought about what those hazel eyes had seen in that battle.
5: For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in COCO.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week Until then, you can join the conversation on Facebook and visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.